This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture in Everyday Life podcast, produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology, with a research and public engagement remit covering the North East and North of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. Right, it's good afternoon now, I think. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, a few words of introduction or warning before I begin. I am by no stretch of the imagination a musician, so uh, I'm a wordsman, so much of today's talk will be concerned with the text. I am, however, accustomed to fitting uh, words to Scottish instrumental music, and in doing so, I probably show a lot less respect to the music than Burns did but it gives me some kind of insight into the art that Burns displayed in the 360 or more songs that he produced. This morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Gordina to start off with two contrasting songs to demonstrate the range of Burns' song, although we got a fair demonstration of that last night in the sing-around when there were five or six Burns songs of uh, very different types sung. Uh, then I'll look at what Burns had to say about song in his, his own writings. Uh, and those of you who have heard talks on Burns's songsmithing before will probably be fairly bored because it will be the same quotations as you always hear because there's a very limited range for, for speakers and writers to draw on uh, Burns's letters, um, his uh, commonplace books and the the notes in the interleaved Scots Musical Museum that he, he made for his friend uh, Robert Riddle. Um, so some of you might want to escape after Gardena's songs, and Gardena's songs are less illustrations of the talk than relief from it. Um, <laughs> after I've done that, I'll take a look at Burns's art in one or two songs that I think can stand being taken to bits and put together again. One reason I don't do Burns' suppers is that at Burns' suppers, all the conclusions are foregone. You're expected to find that Burns is the greatest poet, the greatest songwriter, the greatest letter writer, and the greatest lover in the world. Uh, you will also decide that he was as good a farmer as his, his uh, contemporaries. He was just unlucky in the farms that he picked. You're also expected to note that he never wrote about the sea and he didn't mention the island of Arran. That's, that's it noted now. Uh, so I don't do Burns' suppers. And I certainly won't conclude that Burns was the world's greatest songwriter because my knowledge of the world's songwriters is sorely scanty. Uh, and even in Burns' own day, uh, there were a couple of people who would have challenged him, both in terms of the number of songs they wrote and the number of songs which are still sung by their own countrymen, at least. 
and I'm thinking particularly of Thomas Moore in Ireland and Carl Michael Bellman in Sweden. Um, although Thomas Moore, in fact, gave the palm to Burns, he was uh, very impressed by Burns' songwriting, particularly since the reputation Burns had was that he was no musician. Uh, both uh, Bellman and Moore wrote songs to existing tunes, but they also made up tunes of their own, and there's no clear evidence that Burns did. And that's why the talk is about Burns as a lyric writer rather than Burns as a songwriter. But to begin, can I ask my PowerPoint presentation uh, to stand up <laughs> and uh, sing two contrasting Burns songs? Starting off with banks and bricks. Yeah. If you know it, Fine. A mine the broom he laid her, 
a man brooms a green, and he's fond to the beggar as she had been a queen. And we'll gang me bear a robe, and we beggars be the wine. When a beggar we have milk yolks, and that's your pills of mine. My blessings on me, laddie, the sun my tongue say will. My blessings on, will thou accept the laddie, my pork and pickle meal. Gang ne mer a robe, and the ladies tae the wine. When a beggar we have milk, yoke and fudge a pail sae fine. Said like the beggar took the bent, like when he burned and sprang. Said like the beggar took the bent, and merrily did sing. I am well gang ne mer a robe, and the ladies tae the wine. When a beggar we have milk, yoke. And fudge your tails of fine. My blessings on the gauger, oh gauger, please the chief. So call me past my cattle, nurse a joint of beef. I will gang me bear a robe, and will ladies stay the wine. When a beggar we have meal, yoke and fudge your tails of fine. As I said, these are contrasting songs. The, the Jolly Gager was included in the Merry Muses of Caledonia, the book of body songs, which wasn't published until long after Burns's death. And it's firmly in the folk tradition of encounter ballads. It's got the, the seven stress, <coughs> a couplet that the ballads have with only one rhyme in each verse set to a one strain tune. And it had previously been used for other ballads, and there's a syllabic match between uh, syllable and note. Uh, Ye Banks and Braes uses a two-strain instrumental tune which gives an eight-line verse, though it still only has one rhyme in each four lines. And the first song was meant for singing, obviously, by the folk. The latter is written to preserve a melody by fitting it for singing by the popular singers of the Edinburgh concert rooms and assemblies such as Signora Corrie and Signor Tenducci, well-known Scottish singers. Uh, their, their singing of Scots songs had been the inspiration for George Thompson to start his publishing enterprise called A Select Collection of Scottish Airs. And though Banks and Braes includes the imagery much used in folk song of The Rose and the Thorn, its presentation with the address, the apostrophe, first to the River Doon and then to the birds belongs very much in art poetry. In folk song, if you speak to birds, they speak back to you. Uh, whether it's the parrot in the outlandish night or the bird that witnessed the murder in young hunting or the carrier goshawk in the gay goshawk. And somewhere in between Thompson's collection and the Merry Muses, we could place the, the third publication to which Burns contributed songs, James Johnson's six-volume Scots Musical Museum. Uh, the two editions of Burns's poems that were published in his lifetime contained 16 songs. These three songbooks uh, contain over 300 songs supplied or written by Burns. Now, any look 
at Burns's musical ability must start from his schoolmaster John Murdoch's remark that in learning church music, Gilbert Burns and his brother were left far behind the rest of the school. <laughs> Robert's ear, in particular, was remarkably dull and un his voice untunable. <coughs> it was long before I could get them to distinguish one tune from another. <laughs> this must rank with Fred Astaire's first Screen test, can't act, can't sing, can dance a little. Uh, in later life, various acquaintances were to remark on the musicality, the sonorousness of Burns' speaking voice. Burns, however, remained diffident about his singing ability throughout his life. When he was asked to sing one of his songs at a party, he would instead recite. I suspect that this was at the parties where the mixed company were accustomed to hearing the Tenducci's and the Urbani's and the Corries. Uh, not, not <laughs> uh, <coughs> I believe that Burns and the all-male company of the Krakalan Fencibles or a Masonic Harmony would never have hesitated to give them a song or to join robustly in the choruses. Then there was James Dick's statement. James Dick was the first person to recognise the importance of uh, setting Burns' songs to the tunes taken from the, the contemporary books of music from Burns' own time in about 1903. And he states, there was one melody which he composed for a song of his own about the age of 23. And this melody displeased him so much that he destroyed it and never attempted another. What Burns actually wrote was, it was at this time I set about composing an air in the old Scotch style. I am not musical scholar enough to prick down my tune properly, so it can never see the light, and perhaps there's no great matter. The tune consisted of three parts, so that the verses just went through the whole air. Now, that's hardly saying that he destroyed it and never attempted another. And those of us who write songs will know that you never give up, however unmusical your, your background is, you never give up trying to find a tune of your own. It just happens that when you find out that you think you've written one, it's actually somebody else's uh, <laughs> that you've set the words to. It was about that age of 22, 23 that Burns acquired a fiddle. And it's tempting to speculate that he got it precisely to enable him to prick down the notes. It appears that he never became a proficient player, but he had two or three fiddling friends, John LaPrake, David Siller, Willie Logan, and he must surely have played in the odd session, certainly by the time he began to collect songs and to set words to airs for the museum in 1787, he was able to distinguish tunes on the page and he had started to purchase the Scottish tune books. By 1791, he had an extensive familiarity with instrumental music and he could write to Johnson that he owned all the music of the country except Anderson's collection of Strath's Bays, which had just been published in 1791. He had long had a practical knowledge of the dance music. Dancing had been one of his pleasures from his early days. His first rebellion against his father's strict Presbyterianism 
was at the age of 16 when he attended a, a dancing <coughs> class against his father's wishes. And that information we have from a long autobiographical letter that he wrote to Dr. John Moore in, in 1787, when he was aged 28. And there also we learn that he wrote his first love song at the age of 15 to his girl's favourite reel. And, and he had a habit of writing love songs to reels that I can't quite understand. <laughs> it was then that he began to study songs in a book of English songs, probably a book called The Lark, uh, people have worked out, although there were so many books called The Lark, The Linnet, The Nightingale, The Blackbird, which came out practically every year from, from the cheap uh, chapbook publishers. He wrote, I poured over them, driving my cart or walking to labour, song by song, verse by verse, carefully noting the true, tender or sublime from affectation and fustian. And he served, therefore, a long apprenticeship before songwriting became the passion of his later years. The two people he wrote and collected for, James Johnson and George Thompson, had very different objects in view. Burns regarded Johnson, who was a working printer and engraver, he regarded him as a kindred spirit, because Johnson wanted to print as many songs as possible because he loved Scott's songs and he wanted to preserve them. He thought they were dying out, therefore his book was called The Scots Musical Museum. There was no idea of profit. Indeed, he subsidised the, the project himself. George Thompson, on the other hand, did hope for a wide sale. He didn't get one. Uh, in fact, some of the earlier volumes were... were what we would have called remaindered in those days. They had to sell them off cheap. Uh, he was aiming for a fashionable readership. He was a 70, year, 70 pound a year clerk in a government office, so he wasn't a rich man. Uh, that was his day job. He was a, an accomplished musician and played violin in the concert orchestra at the St. Cecilia's Hall concerts in Edinburgh. And it was there when he heard the singing of Signora Natale Corri and Signor Giusto Tenducci, uh, that inspired him to, to start his collection of songs. So he was writing for a, a very different kind of singer and a different kind of audience. Not everybody, of course, approved of the Italian influence on the Edinburgh music scene. Robert Ferguson, the poet, had written his ode on the death of Scots music some years earlier. Nay lassies new and summer days will lilt at bleaching of their clays. Nay herds and yarrows bonny braes are banks of tweed delight to chaunt their hamel lays. and music's deed. New foreign sonnets bear the gree and crabbit queer variety of sounds fresh sprung frae Italy a bastard breed unlike that soft-tongued melody which new lies did. George Thompson, however, was impressed by Tenducci's singing of Scots songs. Some of you may have noticed uh, that uh, uh, a portrait of Tenducci sold this year for £2 million. Uh, some of you probably didn't. As, <laughs> as late as 1844, 50 years after the singer's death, Thompson was still enthusing. The most judicious, charming charmingly expressive singer of Scottish songs I ever had the pleasure of listening to was Signor Tenducci. 
whose passionate feeling and exquisitely touching expression of the melody was not more remarkable than his marked delivery of the words, which he spoke as effectively as a Kimball would have recited them. If I were to live ever so long, I could not forget the effect of his performance of Rosalind Castle, Lochaber, of the, or the Braes of Ballenden. Uh, I should mention that uh, Tanducci was a castrato, uh, a, a male soprano, so he couldn't very well get further from the, the folk tradition <laughs> as, as a singer. <coughs> Thompson involved European composers to make arrangements of the music. Perhaps, unfortunately, his first collaborator was Ignace Pleyel. The early 1790s were not an easy time to be working with an associate based in revolutionary France. <laughs> Beethoven and Haydn were among the others asked to arrange Burns' songs. And, I mean, they had difficulty because they weren't sent the words, they were just sent the music to arrange for singing. Um, Burns wasn't opposed to the general aim of having concert versions of the songs in, in, in a book. He had probably heard Signora Corey during his stay in Edinburgh, and he had a high opinion of Pietro Urbani, both as a performer and as an arranger. He wrote to Thompson, he sings so delightfully that whatever he introduces at your concert must have immediate celebrity. <coughs> so he was making this two-pronged attempt to preserve Scott's music. Uh, but he didn't always agree with Thompson. When it came to individual items, Thompson and Burns were frequently in disagreement, and it's to that that we are indebted for much of our knowledge of Burns's methods and criteria. Near me, near me, laddie, lie near me. Ach, laddie, lie near me, must lie by me sometime. I don't know the air until I'm complete master of a tune in my own singing, such as it is. I can never compose for it. My way is, I consider the poetic sentiment correspondent to my idea of the musical expression. Then choose my theme. Begin one stanza. When that is composed, which is generally the most difficult part of the business, I walk out, sit down now and then, look out for subjects in nature around me that are in unison and harmony with the cogitations of my fancy and the workings of my bosom, humming every now and then the air with the verses I have framed. When I feel my muse beginning to jade, I retire to the solitary fireside of my study and then commit my effusion to paper, swinging at intervals on the hind legs of my elbow chair by way of calling forth my own critical strictures as my pen goes on. Seriously, this at home is almost invariably my way. In other words, Burns is starting from the music and shaping the words to fit. I usually start from a line of text that's come into my head, and where necessary, I bend the tune to fit it. Uh, in spite of being told of the care, consideration, and cogitation that went into a Burns composition, Thompson felt that his better command of formal music gave him a right to suggest alterations and improvements, which he frequently did. 
This led to further correspondence. Sometimes Thompson got his way, as he did with the change of air and therefore a slight change of words for Scots Wahey. And sometimes, as with Scots Wahey, the public let him know that Burns was right and the original was reinstated. Urbani, when Burns let him hear the tune to uh, Scots Wahey, asked Burns to make some soft verses to it. And this is a reminder that a series of notes is a very imprecise way of conveying meaning. The original words, hey hey was Funu give a very different mood from Scots Wahey, but still wouldn't be classed as, as soft. And it took Lady Nairn to put to the same tune, Am we no word, John? Likes no reason, John, uh, to provide the kind of sentiment that Urbani was looking for. On another occasion, Burns gave uh, a different hint to Thompson about how he improved his songs. Whenever I want to be more than ordinary in song, to be in some degree equal to your diviner airs, do you imagine that I fast and pray for divine emanation? Tout au contraire. He loved putting in wee bits of French into his letters. Uh, I have a glorious recipe, the very one that for his own use was invented by the divinity of healing and poesy when erst he piped to the flocks of Admetus. I put myself in a regimen of admiring a fine woman. And in proportion to the adorability of her charms, in proportion you are delighted with my verses, which is not quite the same as swinging on your elbow chair. Uh, <laughs> Burns's irritation with Thompson occasionally comes through. Dainty Davy, I have heard sung 19,999 times and always with a chorus to the low part of the tune. And nothing since a highland wench in the Cougate once bore me three bastards at a birth has surprised me so much as your opinion on this subject. If it will not suit as I proposed, we will lay two of the stanzas together and make the chorus follow that. Uh, nowadays, in fact, I mean, I've seen a couple of the singers crying out in their heads, eh? Nowadays, we sing the chorus to Dainty Davy to the high part of the tune. The feature which Burns repeatedly stressed was simplicity. Songs are made to be heard and not read and reread on the page, so complex figurative language doesn't work at a hearing. Give me leave to criticise your taste in the only thing in which it is, in my opinion, reprehensible. You know I ought to know something of my own trade. Of pathos, sentiment and point, you are a complete judge. But there is a quality more necessary than either in a song, and which is the very essence of a ballad. I mean simplicity. Now, if I mistake not, this last feature, you are a little apt to sacrifice to the former. Burns was also aware that the best poetry doesn't always make the best songs. Nobody 
has ever really explained the magic by which um, an ordinary line of, of words fitted to what is just a good line of music turns out something which is a magnificent song. Um, nobody really has ever explained it. And I mean, my favorite example of that is 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, which took Roddy McMillan a long time to change to 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, and Yuri was up in the air. Uh, and that's maybe a rather comic example, but it's, it's that change that's setting the words uh, to a tune gives the lift to both words and tune that is unexplainable. If you mean, my dear sir, that all the songs in your collection shall be poetry of the first merit, I'm afraid you will find difficulty in the undertaking more than you are aware of. There is peculiar rhythmus in many of our airs, a necessity of adapting syllables to the emphasis or what I would call the feature notes of the tune that cramps the poet and lays him under almost insuperable difficulties. For instance, in the air my wife's a wanton wee thing, if a few lines, smooth and pretty, can be adapted to it, it is all that you can expect. And again, you get the respect for the tune above the words that comes through in, in all Burns's writing about song-making. Where Thompson was all for having words in the most elegant English style, Burns was insistent that he should write in Scots. These English songs gravel me to death. I have not that command of the language that I have of my native tongue. In fact, I think that my ideas are more barren in English than in Scottish. And again, there is a naivety, a pastoral simplicity in a slight intermixture of Scots words and phraseology, which is more in unison, at least to my taste, and I will add to every genuine Caledonian taste, with the simple pathos or rustic sprightliness of our native music than any English verses whatever. And again and again, in his letters to Thompson, he insists that the language must be Scottish, but equally he refers to a sprinkling of Scots words. That was a part of the simplicity. He knew that the urban audiences would shut off if a song was too broad. He also knew that Scots folk songs were seldom heavy with, with dialect. In many cases, of course, they were localised versions of songs sung throughout the English-speaking world, and as Hamish Henderson put it, ballad Scots grazes ballad English along its whole length. So there are very few Burns songs that are a broad dialect songs. His sources for uh, tunes and songs were varied. I've already mentioned that he possessed all the collections of instrumental music. When he first began working with Thompson, he told him that he need only send the first line of any song he wanted Burns to amend because he had already recourse to all the collections of Scottish song. 
He also collected songs from singers in Ayrshire, the most important being his wife, Jean Armour, who he claimed knew all the ballads in the country and had the finest wood note wild he ever heard. On his tours to different parts of Scotland in 1787-1788, he not only visited locations mentioned in all the songs he already knew, he also learned Highland tunes and picked up Scotch songs. He refers to getting a song Viva Voce from a young lass, and it's unlikely his fiddle playing allowed him to prick down the notes as they were sung, although they allowed him to go from page to tune. Um, usually you get someone else, like his co-worker Stephen Clark, to note down tunes. Stephen Clark uh, helped him with both the, the Johnson and the Thompson ones. Uh, Clark was uh, the organist at uh, the Episcopal Church in, in Edinburgh. And Clark it was who noted down from the Reverend George Clooney. Um, he notes uh, to Thompson in 1794 about the song called The Yows, which gives some idea of, of Burns's practice with regard to editing. I'm flattered that you're adopting Caw the Yows to the Nows as it was owing to me that it ever saw the light. About seven years ago, I was well acquainted with a worthy little fellow of a clergyman, a Mr. Clooney, who sung it charmingly. And at my request, Mr. Clark took it down from his singing. When I gave it to Johnson, I added some stanzas to the song and mended others. But still, it will not do for you. In a solitary stroll which I took today, I tried my hand on a few pastoral lines, following up the idea of the chorus which I would preserve. Here it is, with all its crudities and imperfections on its head. Not quite. Gardena's going to sing the first set, the set that was given to Johnson uh, for the musical museum, without crudities and imperfections. Which is not the Clutons Woods of mine. I prefer this one, there's no other story to no. it. When everybody to hear 
times and ribbons meet, cough leather shoon upon your feet. And in my arms is lion sleep, and ye shall be my dear. If you'll but stand what ye have said, as young with you, my shepherd lad, ye may row me and your plaid, and I'll be your dear. As the waters wimple to the sea, the sun shines in the left sea. perhaps mention to the non-Scots in the audience that caw the yows doesn't mean you shouted to them, it meant you drove them, as in the word caw the rope in skiffing or caw the feet for him in football. Uh, <coughs> hey, in other words, to drive the, the ewes rather than to, to shout them, which wouldn't have worked. Uh, these remarks to Thompson about the treatment of that song that he added some stanzas and mended others, a rather conflict with the letter he wrote to William Teitler, who had written a history of Scottish song about his own editing practice in 1787. Sir, enclosed I have sent you a sample of the old pieces that are still to be found among our peasantry in the West. I once had a great many of these fragments, and some of these here, entire, but as I had no idea then that anybody cared for them, I have forgot them. I invariably hold it sacrilege to add anything of my own to help out with the shattered wrecks of these venerable old compositions. But they have many various readings. So Burns knew what was politically correct eh, when it came to song collecting. But with Thompson, he sort of changed the perspective by saying that he wouldn't alter a song unless he felt he could amend it. Uh, another feature on which his practice diverged from his theory, or at least his speculation in the commonplace book, was rhyme. There's a degree of wild irregularity in many of the compositions and fragments which are daily sung to old airs by my compeers, the common people a certain happy arrangement of old Scotch syllables, and yet, very frequently, nothing even like rhyme or sameness of jingle at the ends of lines. This has made me sometimes imagine that perhaps it might be possible for a Scotch poet with a nice judicious ear to set compositions to many of our favourite airs, particularly that class of them mentioned above, independent of rhyme, altogether. Now, to Robert Burns, rhyme was second only to breathing. <laughs> Leaves me on rhyme, it's I a treasure, my chief, almost my only pleasure. 
At hame a field at work or leisure, the muse pair hizzy, though rough and rattloch be her measure, she's seldom lazy. And more famously, I am nae poet in a sense, but just a rhymer like by chance, and hate a learning nae pretence, yet what the matter? Whene'er my muse does on me glance, I jingle at her. And his use of rhyme is one of the things that marks his songs as different from folk songs. Uh, as I pointed out at the start in the Jolly Gager, the great body of folk song favours the four-line verse with a rhyme and the second and fourth lines. But that's no challenge to a rhymer. He may not, in the songs, use rhyme itself for comic effect, as he does in the verse epistles, though he comes close in songs like What Can a Young Lassie Do Wait an Old Man? Uh, rhyming Auntie Katie with Petey comes close, uh, or in The Deals of War, where the word exciseman summons up prizeman, strathspiseman, and rejoiceman. Um, perhaps the greatest rhyming challenge he set himself in verse and song uh, was his cantata from late 1784, Love and Liberty, or better known as the Jolly Beggars, where every piece of recitative was in a different stanza form, including all the complex rhyme patterns of Scottish tradition, the ones known as Standard Habby, which became known as the Burns stanza, the Ballad Royal, Christkirk on the Green, and Cherry on the Sleigh. He deliberately set out to include all of these difficult rhymes in uh, The Jolly Beggars. And in the songs, he covered all the dance rhythms of the day, the, the jig, the slip jig, the strispey, and the reel. And it's hard to believe that when Thompson asked him about it eight years later, Burns claimed they had forgotten all about this cantata, eh, except for some lines of the last song, which was, eh, in fact, the only lines he quoted was, eh, Kirks for cowards were erected, eh, courts for cowards were erected, churches built to please the priest. Uh, which were not exactly the lines to keep him in his job as an exciseman. Um, a different sort of challenge was set for the first song I'll look at in more detail, although perversely I'll not examine the marriage of text and tune because this is one of the, the love songs that he wrote to a real tune uh, and I much prefer it to the tune that was put to it in the 19th century. Um, and which most people know it to now. I mean, most people would associate Mary Morrison with, with the slow uh, air. But Burns wrote it to the real tune, Duncan Davison. And in the old song with that title and the Merry Muses, the name Duncan Davison only once occurs in the rhyming position. And rhyme is maybe not what you would call uh, Duncan Davison and she gid o'er the muir to spin. Um, the name Morrison, as in Mary Morrison, didn't make rhyming any easier. The only word that springs to mind being the Shakespearean Orison, uh, because you have to rhyme on, on the third last syllable. Uh, the coward's way out would have been to tuck it at the beginning of a line out of rhyme's way, but Burns chose not to do that. 
Oh, Mary, at thy window be, it is the wish to the trysted door, those smiles and glances let me see, that make the miser's treasure poor. How blithely could I bide the store, a weary slave free sun to sun, could I the rich reward secure? The lovely Mary Morrison. Burns puts the name in that prominent position, and he makes the name stand out further by scorning rhyme on the stressed antepenultimate syllable leaving the last two syllables unstressed, but with assonance, half rhyme on the sixth line's last stressed syllable each time, the syllables in question being sun, tune, and shone. The stanza is the one known as the Ballad Royale, um, which is a complex rhyme. Uh, it has a single rhyme at lines one and three, but it's then got a quadruple rhyme at lines two, four, five, and seven um, in every verse. But if the rhyme's complex, the other features meet Burns's demands for simplicity and a sprinkling of Scots. Instead of metaphor or simile, the imagery is that of hyperbole, which is always acceptable in folk song. The second stanza in particular uses single words to conjure a vivid picture, the trembling string, the lichted paw, trembling and lichted. I mean, that immediately conjures for us the picture of uh, naked flame lighting an 18th century hall. Um, even if we're living in the 20th century, that wouldn't allow it, uh, the flambeaux of the world before the electricity. Hugh McDermott, asked to select Burns' best line of poetry, chose you Arna Mary Morrison, which again is what I was saying, a very simple line, but in the context that it's placed in uh, and given the tune is raised to, to a height uh, that it wouldn't reach on its own. Yestreen when tae the trembling string, the dance went through the halected hall. To thee, my fancy took its wing. I sat, but neither heard nor saw, though this was fair and that was broad. And yon the toast o' the tune, I sighed and said among them all, You're not Mary Morrison. The other song that I'd like to look at uh, comparatively briefly uh, is Such a Parcel of Rogues in a nation. I said sick there because uh, that's how Ewan McCall put it back in 
to the singing tradition. Uh, Burns wrote it as such a parcel of rogues in a nation. And usually when you hear somebody singing sick a parcel of rogues in a nation, it means Ewan McCall has been here. <laughs> uh, and it's one of the things we should uh, give McCall credit for, that he put not only uh, a vast number of, of folk songs back into people singing, but he did the same for a large number of Burns' pieces that had fallen out, uh, certainly of the concert platform tradition. And I should emphasise here also the importance of the, the performer in uh, passing on songs. Uh, a lot of the Burns songs still don't get sung, uh, and we're indebted to uh, sort of charismatic sung versions for many of the ones that we do sing. I mean, for instance, Dick Gorham's version of Westland Winds had also passed out of the tradition till Dick uh, sang it, uh, and it's been taken up by so many other people now. <coughs> I realise that many of you here are familiar with such a parcel of rogues uh, and its background, but I'll summarise it for those who are not. To prepare the ground for an act of union between Scotland and England, 31 Scottish commissioners were nominated by Queen Anne in 1704 from the members of the Scots Parliament to meet with the English commissioners. 30 of the Scots belonged to the Whig Party, which supported the Queen and the Hanoverian succession. Many of them also benefited from the payment of £20,000, which was provided by the English government ostensibly in payment of outstanding debts, but widely viewed as a bribe to see the Act of Union through. The first article of the Act was passed by a majority of 33. In the political pamphlets of the day, the Scots commissioners were referred to as the parcel of rogues, and in at least two of the published collections of music which Burns owned, the Caledonian Pocket Companion and McGibbon's collection of Scotch tunes, there was a tune called Such a Parcel of Rogues in a Nation, and that was usually enough to set Burns off. He writes in one of his letters that whenever he met with a tune with some facetious, witty idea in its title, he felt the inclination to try a couple of verses on that idea. Burns wrote his song in 1792. That was the year when the Scottish radical Thomas Muir was sentenced to 14 years deportation for distributing Tom Paine's rights of man and for sympathising with the aims of the French Revolution. A year in which Burns himself was to be threatened with the loss of his livelihood as a gauger for demonstrating similar sympathies. A year in which he encouraged the editor of the Edinburgh Gazetteer to lay bare with undaunted heart and steady hand that horrid mass of corruption called politics and statecraft. Things are bad in 1792. Um, it's tempting to speculate that he may have had the Scots politicians of his own day in mind when he wrote such a parcel of rogues, but there's no hint of that in the song. And he certainly didn't know about our current parcel of rogues. Um, <laughs> Here we'll take our Scottish fame. Here we'll ancient glory. Here we'll even take 
songs, this is a dramatic piece. The voice we hear is not that of Robert Burns. The great artistic achievement of, of this song is the creation of this eye figure of the old Scottish patriot sunk in dismay at the loss of his nation's independence, but with anger smouldering just below, and with his hatred and scorn for the traitors bursting out at intervals. Burns' text as the resignation and dismay in the low first part of the tune, the anger coming to the surface in the high second part, and hissing hatred in the last line refrain, which is no uh, connection with the rest of the stanza in terms of grammar or of meaning, though it is linked by rhyme. The use of now in stanzas one and two, and thus in stanza three, gives a sense of the proximity of the disaster. We can perhaps picture the old man as speaking on the 25th of March 1707, the very day when the Scots Parliament voted itself out of existence. And the Chancellor, the Earl of Seafield, could say, no, there's an end of an old sang. Now, the mood of despair and powerlessness is particularly marked in the first stanza. There are six lines without a single plosive. I don't just mean there are no words beginning with a P or B in these six lines. There isn't a P or a B in the whole song until you come to the word province. Uh, and so you can pack all the anger into that first plosive and follow it with the sibilant disgust of the refrain, the refrain line. And the stress in province is an extra one because the musical emphasis in line seven is on the fourth and the eight syllables. And this serves to point up the old man's primary objection to the act that the Union doesn't treat England and Scotland as equal sovereign states, but reduces the ancient kingdom of Scotland to a dependency. And the match of text and tune is also important in the repeated despondent farewell of the opening lines uh, where Burns departs from the usual syllabic lyric writing to give four notes to each of the three farewells. His third farewell even to the Scottish name, prophetic as it would have been in 1707, is aimed at the fact that already by 1792 Scotland was wild, widely referred to as North Britain and probably there are also people referring to the whole island as England. Mm. New sat runs o'er the Solway sands and tweed runs to the ocean, as sat and tweed had always done, the difference being that they no longer mark the boundary of an independent country, but of a mere province of England. I'm going to rush over and not sing the rest. Uh, stanza two 
is the one that makes direct reference to the villains of the refrain and in a single couplet brands them as hirelings, cowards and traitors who have sold out the tradition of countless ages. The antithesis of the metals, steel and gold, the English steel we could disdain, secure in valor station, but English gold has been our bane, such a parcel of rogues in a nation. Uh, that's typical of the clear imagery and patterning that Burns liked in his lyric writing, although it is perhaps one step away from the simplicity of folk song. The meaning of this stanza is also less clear with its elliptical reference to Scottish nationhood, which force or guile could not subdue, but which is now wrought, worked or twisted by the commissioners into whatever shape they or the English want. And the third stanza invokes the names of the Scottish freedom fighters, Bruce and Wallace, despairing that they are dead as the speaker wishes he had been before this disastrous event. And again, the rising second part of the tune brings him back to defiance, this time given extra emphasis by internal rhyme on lines five and seven. But birth and power till my last hour, I'll make this declaration. We are bought and sold for English gold. Such a parcel of rogues in a nation. It's not so close to folk song as John Anderson or old Lang Syne. It shows sophistication in its two-strained melody, in the imagery of the second stanza, and in its rhyme. The final word, nation, of the title means that the running rhyme is always a feminine one over two syllables, and this is alternated with the male rhyme, fame, name, sand, stands, etc. The feminine rhyme, or assonance, is used particularly boldly in Sellers, Wallace, the song demands historical knowledge of its listeners, whether in 1792 or 2009. <laughs> and in writing a song, the poet must also have regard to singability. Here, every stress syllable, with three deliberate exceptions, falls on a naturally open or long vowel sound. He doesn't put in, he doesn't make people sing cut or hit on long notes. The masculine end rhymes of the odd lines in particular are on open syllables or syllables closed with a nasal. Fame, sands, subdue, pain, day. I mean, when a songwriter's looking to provide uh, good things for a, a, a singer to sing, that's the kind of thing he looks at. I mean, when I came across the phrase yellow on the broom, it was ideal, I thought, for singing. Um, the exceptions that I spoke of are the occurrence of England or English, where he deliberately puts the stress on the ugliest sound a Scot can produce, really, uh, <laughs> that particular uh, pronunciation of England. Uh, Burns began songwriting at the age of 15. By 1792, he refers to his hobby as his hobby horse. In his arguments with Thompson, he points out that he ought to know about it because it is his trade. And I hope you'll agree that in the, word, the hands of Burns, it was 
and that. And I'd like to ask Gardina to finish off uh, with a old line sign, uh, which seems appropriate. I think we can all say it. Yes, probably. I won't do it in because I can't remember. <coughs> Surely you'll be your pint of soup. Right. Should <coughs> picture this very carefully because it's the old tune and it goes down. Should old acquaintance to say that there's no time for questions. Goodbye. <laughs>
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.